Wrestling fans, I have a wrestling dream. A wrestling dream of wrestle dream. I don't know. I have a dream. And I live that dream. That dream was to go to Wrestle Dream in Seattle, Washington. And I am sprinting into this podcast this morning. Welcome into Rope Break episode four. Starring me, I am the Greg Flynn. And this is a pro wrestling podcast available wherever you get podcasts on Spotify, on Apple, on YouTube for the video version. And you can watch it live Tuesdays at 1230 p.m. Eastern time on twitch.tv slash wet meat wrestling join the conversation join the hype and can you tell i'm hyped as fuck i'm like sleepy hyped because i've been doing a lot of traveling you see me and me and my lady we got in our little buggy this uh past weekend and we cruised on up the west coast going through the mountains going through the forest to get from our little mountainside home here in oregon to the big city of Seattle, Washington, where we watched AEW Wrestle Dream on Sunday night, and it was fucking awesome. The hype was real. The fans were awesome. Uh, everything that makes a wrestling show a wrestling show was there. Let's put it that way. It was fucking awesome. It was super fucking fun. And uh, today on the pod, I'm going to break down a few of my favorite matches, or, or at least a few of the noteworthy matches, and I'll channel my inner cantankerous wrestling snob and I'll tell you everything fucking wrong about everything that happened and then I'll remind you that I loved it because that's what we do here on Rope Break, a pro wrestling podcast. We take this shit way too fucking seriously. Don't fucking giggle about professional wrestling. Come on, you guys know that better than anyone. And then after that, we're going to preview WWE Fastlane. I think that that is a surprisingly good card. And uh, I'm just such a mark for WWE sometimes. And boy, man, I tell you what, after going to my, this was my first wrestling show ever, like live, like ever after 35 years, it was fucking cool. Uh, But like after seeing it live, uh, particularly AEW with regard to this, it really just brought out some of the differences and the contrast between the two companies and their philosophies because... When you go to an AEW show, it it felt like it just felt like an indie show in a certain way. Like it just felt like a collection of matches that may or may not have had stories attached to them. And you know, as I say that, the one match that sticks out is like, for example, they, it feels like they just sort of throw threw in Ricky Starks and Wheeler Yuta so we could have a Ricky Starks match, and so. They could make it a wrestling show. And so they're not, and I'm kind of, I'm almost saying the compliment to the critique, which is like, I'm seeing the good in a certain sense now that I've been there live. I am seeing the good in the way they book these matches. Because when you're there, it does start to feel, in part because there are so many matches, and it's match after match after match, that you're really at a significant and fun wrestling show what a fucking novel idea that you're not necessarily at a soap opera um but i love my soap opera too and that's like the soap opera is why fast lane is shaping up into a great card but we're gonna get to that we're gonna get to all that uh first things first uh no no more putting the cart before the horse i want to talk about some of the matches at wrestle dream and what we saw while we were there live what's next for aew uh and does wrestle dream did it live up to 
I don't know about the hype. I don't know if there was a lot of hype for AEW Wrestle Dream, but did it live up to the billing? Did it live up to Tony Khan's hype that this was going to represent a new era in AEW wrestling? You did it. Why, why would it? It did it. We're going to break all that down, and we're going to start with the first match of the show, which was a 2v1 handicap match between the AEW World Champion and the Ring of Honor Tag Team Champion, MJF versus The Righteous. Uh, there's not, honestly, I wanted to talk about this match just because it was MJF. There's not, honestly, a lot of meat on that bone. The best way I know to talk about it is I watched some of the post-show press scrum. And during it, MJF mentioned that um, he took a little bit of offense to the idea that somebody had called this a gimmick match. As to what exactly that means is certainly up for debate. Um, and he took offense to it, and he just basically explained that it's not a gimmick. It, more or less than everything's a gimmick, and I'm doing my work by making interesting matches and interesting moments. And that's what I did here in a 2v1, and that doesn't make it any more or less of a gimmick than anything else. And that's very cute, MJF, but this was a gimmick match. <laughs> this was a match that just existed to get MJF into the building and into some sort of a match and give us an excuse to cheer him on, which we did because he's our scumbag. And it was cute, and he said that he was going to shove that one guy's hair up that other guy's ass, and then show enough, he that's exactly what he did. And we loved him for it, and he was our scumbag. Uh, so as far as like overthinking wrestling, like, and this is what I always get in trouble for. I throw ratings on these sort of matches that don't need ratings, but this was a four out of 10 <laughs> with that said. And with that in mind, like this was, this just was what it was. It was a little bit entertaining and it was a little bit fun. Um, the one thought, like in terms of like over critiquing things, the one thought that does kind of come to my mind is like. You know, we want to see MJF in action. We want to see him pushed to the limit, right? And obviously, he's pushed to the limit against Samoa Joe. He's not necessarily pushed to the limit against the righteous, and I get that. Um, but, you know, I was a little bummed that there wasn't a world title fight at this show. They didn't have a world title fight at All Out, which means they're collecting 50 bucks a month from me without even putting championship matches I know that they had all in. I know that they had Grand Slam. So really, when you look at the company, like that's just my perspective as somebody who was there. Boy, that would have been cool. But when you scale back and you look at the whole company and you look at what's happening, the greater question becomes, um, are they able to put on interesting shows that are ultimately worth the money despite not having their main eventer, MJF, their guy, their fucking homegrown champion, our scumbag, if they're not going to put him in a high-profile match for these sort of pay-per-views, well then, you know, pay-per-views got to deliver on top of that. That It means there's got to be um, surprises. It means there's got to be uh, swerves, if you will, when you're driving down the road of the pay-per-view. What a perfect fucking segue that was into uh, the next match, which definitely, I think, has a little bit more meat on its bones to be talked about. And I'm not going to talk about every match from Wrestle Dream. Uh, and, you know, part of that is because, you know, it, it, when you're there, 
you got to pick a match to go uh, get a pizza during and go get a beer during. So you end up missing things. And then you end up goofing around with your wife and this and that. So anyway, regardless, <laughs> not to go down too many tangents in this moment. Next match I want to talk about is Swerve Strickland and Hangman Page. This was the one that in terms of like a build that I was most excited for. And I have been talking about this match and making TikToks about this match because I'm a big mark for Swerve Strickland right now. And I'll tell you, coming into this show, it totally fell off my radar that Swerve Strickland is from Seattle, Washington. It, you could feel and sense without even knowing that, right? You could, and this is what I've been talking about in the pod for a while in the buildup, was that you could feel sort of the babyface energy or at least the momentum, the groundswell, the push, the support from the fans behind Swerve Strickland for the work he was doing, uh, cutting off Hangman Page's balls with that microphone week after week. Jesus Christ. And we just loved it. We just loved watching Swerve castrate, excuse me, Hangman Page week after week on the show. And the city of Washington was so fucking ready to watch uh, Swerve castrate Hangman Page in that match. The the venom being poured out towards Hangman Page when he during his introduction, during the match, we fucking hated that piece of shit cowboy. And it was really funny because my wife was next to me and she had been drinking and everyone's booing and cheering on Swerve Strickland. And she's sitting there shouting, ride forever, cowboy, ride forever. I just, I inched my way away from her and I was chanting that it was Swerve's house. And it was a great match. It was Swerve's house. It was Swerve's house that night. Uh, and it's been Swerve's house for a while um, and AEW needs to become Swerve's house. Like this was a great feud to get him over with. Um, the whole Seattle thing adds a new layer. Like I, I, I didn't fully understand why they were putting Hangman Page into this position to have his nuts cut off. Like, did is that going to really help him if we just point out all his flaws and then beat him? Like. Okay, yeah, we can have a redemption arc with him now. Sure, whatever. But, like, to be honest, the other side of that is, like, I didn't like Hangman Page in this spot. I don't know who you do it against. Maybe I mean, I off the top of my head, Kenny Omega. Like, I feel like you could have said 80% of the things about Hangman Page, they would also apply to Kenny Omega. And it would have been a beefier opponent in a variety of ways. Uh, for Swerve to get over. And the reason I think about that or the reason I would care about that is because Hangman's whole thing is the feelings of inadequacy, the lack of self-confidence that, that he has or his character has. And so Swerve comes in as the heel and then he gets cheered as the hometown hero who's the heel, but he's the heel pointing out the 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 fat on on... Hangman Page, both literally and in terms of his story arc and his character right now is really how I meant that. Um, and Hangman got over some of that, right? We watched him get over some of that when he defeated Kenny Omega, when he won the world championship. And then he kind of 
recreated it for himself. So the problem cycled. And so we're getting the same story again with Hangman Page. He's not becoming a heel yet. And we got to see the show. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. But he's not becoming a heel yet. Maybe this is a good spot for him. Jesus, and as I say all this, this, uh, book it. Here's your money. Tony Khan, you're welcome. I've been working through I've been working through the issues of the podcast this morning and it just fucking hit me. Yeah, this is the moment for Hangman Page to go full fucking heel. Um and to be pissed at the fans for betraying him and giving up on him and to be pissed at everyone who's ever given up on him in his career and to put a little like edge on that fucking character so he isn't so soft in every perceivable way. Because it was bad. It was just bad. And, and like, when I was watching the match, I was like, is there any reason for Hangman to kick out of very much in this match? Like, how much do we really have to do here? Like, let's just... <laughs> Swerve goes for that stomp off of the top turnbuckle. Let's just stomp this fucking thing home and let's call it. They put on a great match, though. The work in the ring was great. Uh, Swerve, I thought, was really great. I thought... I mean, I've only seen his singles matches on TV, and there haven't been a ton of them. Um, but I thought it was maybe his best singles match in AEW. Um, and Hangman Page had a great match for for his role in all of that. Um, and so I, the, my final score on the match was a 7-4 out of 10. I really enjoyed it. Um, I really enjoyed both what those guys brought to the table. And I'm super excited to see what's next for both of them. Like, I, I'm genuinely interested in Hangman Page right now, to be fair. I'm genuinely interested. Are they going to – is he just going to disappear for another three months and then show up as a underwhelming babyface again? Like, is that all they can do here? Or can they do more? It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to do a lot more with him, I think. And boy, fucking howdy, it's an opportunity to do so much more with Swerve Strickland. Like, I'm ready to have – uh, the world championship around his waist. Like, I- I'm-, I'm ready to push him to the fucking moon. Uh, he can be our scumbag just as well as MJF can be our scumbag. Uh, I mean, the people doing the the swerve dance and the audience, the chance for swerve's house. I know it was Seattle, Washington, and-, and I didn't account for that coming into it, but it doesn't really change anything because the work was so good that we were able to get behind what was happening. Um, there were, you know, there were other people from Seattle, Darby Allen in the main event. I don't think got that pop. I don't think got that enthusiasm. Um, he, I mean, he really didn't. Christian Cage is so compelling right now that people wanted to kind of cheer for Christian Cage in a certain sense too. Um, and so it was hard to get that level of hometown Seattle momentum. They got a lot of it, obviously. I mean, the crowd exploded for Darby, but and we'll get to that match later. But um, to come full circle, to come back to the point, Swerve Strickland is killing it. Uh, give him more. Put him on collision. Put him on dynamite in singles matches. Uh, we want more and more Swerve Strickland. We want him... I want him against Kenny Omega now. I just sold myself on that being his next step. And uh, damn, I would watch... Oh, damn, I would watch Swerve Strickland versus MJF. That could be really interesting. You could put Swerve... I mean, his post-show uh, press scrum was so good, too. Um, again, I, I think he has a weird delivery, the way he speaks. But he gets to it. Like, he gets to kind of what matters and what's interesting. And he was talking in the press scrum about... 
um, being so proud of how easy it was to manipulate Hangman Page and to manipulate the fans. And there's just like an edge and connotation in those words and the way he delivered them where I'm just like, I'm ready to hate you. I love hate you. Like, this is great. This is just great. So Swerve Strickland versus MJF could be so fucking good down the road. And they got to give MJF more. Like, like we want to see him feud with people. We want to see the MJF title run. Like, that's kind of what I was just saying with regard to his matches. Like, the, the like who? what's the resume? What's the list? Who did he beat? And what did he do when he was champion? People are going to talk about that down the road. And so you're building that legacy. So, so, so build it. Swerve versus MJF. Our scumbag versus the scumbag. Swerve's the heel, the manipulative uh, evil one, right? Whereas our scumbag has a side of cheeky fun to him that we then get behind. And that could be a great fucking feud. So I'm ready for that. I saw, there you go, Tony. That one's free. You're fucking welcome. The next match... <laughs> on my list here, uh, and I don't have a ton to say about this one, with six-man tag, Will Ospreay, uh, Takeshita and Guevara versus Ibushi, Omega, and Jericho. Um, and the first thing I want to say and the thing I'm giggling about here was Don Callis's music of the Don Callis family, it's just like somebody like passed out on top of an organ and then they're just hitting the same key. And then they put up this big picture of Don Callis and Takesha and Sammy Guevara all hanging out in The Last Supper. Like it's a it's a parody of The Last Supper painting. And it's them. And Don Callis is Jesus. And that fucking like, it's not even a song. That fucking note is just blaring over the arena. And I was laughing so fucking hard. It was like it was un- it was unpleasant. It was an unpleasant sound, but it was just kind of funny and weird enough that you you were able to enjoy it as a heel spot for Callus, and it kind of got the whole thing over. Like as the bad guys, like it was such an underrated moment. I felt like like I think people were just like uncomfortable, but they didn't realize like. This is why you're interested right now is because of how uncomfortable Don Callis can make you. I think he's doing really good stuff as a manager. He's a lot of fun. I don't love everything that that they're doing with feuding with Omega. And, and dude, and this is the downside of this match is like, like they want to try to sell it. I get that. And I feel like these sort of matches get way too much love and affection <laughs> They don't deserve this much love from the AEW fans because Kenny Omega afterwards and Chris Jericho and Tony Khan tell these people afterwards that this was just such a great match and such a great show and and how proud they are of this match and they're selling what they're doing. But like when you watch it, this isn't anything more than a six-man tag match meant to shove in some names on the card. Like it just is what it is. And I think that, like, the fans of Omega and Ibushi are going to get crazy offended by that. Like, if you follow the Golden Lovers, here's the thing. If you follow the Golden Lovers, you might have loved what you were seeing, a reunion there, and they're working together, and they had some spots together, and that was super cute. Um, I'd be so bold as to say, who the fuck actually followed the Golden Lovers while it was happening? It wasn't even in New Japan, correct me 
in the comments or whatever if I'm wrong. I mean, we're talking about a smaller Japanese promotion where they, as sort of like junior heavyweights at the time, had a story about maybe they were in love with each other. And <laughs> okay, that's fine. That like that that's fine. And liking that story is fine. But selling me that story as a main event thing that everybody already knows and cares about, I'm telling you, you guys, I literally heard fans in the audience like, oh my God, it's a bushi. And then, like, their kids being like, and this was right behind me where I was sitting, who's Ibushi? And it's like, I don't actually really know, but he's from Japan, and he's big, and he's friends with Omega, so we need to get hyped. And I really think that that is a huge amount of the New Japan Kenny Omega marks that are out there are just buying hype sold to them on the internet. And sold to them from New Japan and good booking and Japanese promotions for some halfway decent storylines that happened, but that are not relevant main level main event level things to an American audience here and now, right? We're fucking hyped about Swerve Strickland. We're fucking hyped about Edge. We're fucking hyped about Darby Allen. We're fucking hyped for MJF. I think that if it, AEW fans are being real fucking odd, honest. They don't give a flying fuck about the Golden Lovers. They say that they do to be cool. That's my take. That's my read on it. I, I think that I know that I'll super offend some people. I honestly think the only people offended by that are the people for whom it's true about. Because if you follow the Golden Lovers and just like that story and like those wrestlers, I, I got no beef there. But I sensed it. I, you can feel it. You can feel it when the crowd is kind of flat for Ibushi. Like, they cheered, but they're, they were kind of flat for Omega. They were flat for Ibushi. Like, this was a match in the middle of a really long show. Um, and, you know, the other side of it, to be fair, is that we just had the Takesha Omega match, right? We just had the Osprey Omega match. Like, these guys have a story, and they're doing some work right now that perhaps isn't in a phase where it calls for a big singles match right now. So they have the six-man tag, and that's what's in flow for them right now. Like, I don't begrudge that. But I'm trying to point out, I'm trying to tease out what I think is a truth that I don't think people... I don't think people care about Kenny Omega as much as they did a year or two ago. And I don't think Kenny Omega has the... Um, the mystique anymore. And I think the mystique has been destroyed because now in New Japan, he was working for a promotion where I think it's a tighter package, not unlike WWE. I think it's a tighter, more controlled, creative vision, whether you're talking about in-ring work or out-of-ring work and promos and how we're selling what we're doing here. Whereas AEW, everyone is an, is a pod. It feels like all these different pods of creative uh, work and creative ideas and so okay Omega and Takesha are working together right now and that's your pod and they're gonna do their thing and and there's kind of a vibe of that in wrestling in general right two sides have to feud um, but man the pods that Omega have been in have I think totally destroyed uh, his mystique and his rep and now that he just does whatever he wants 
and says whatever he wants, and this is coming to the like biggest point that I have to make, I think he looks a little bit foolish. And I would encourage you, if you're listening to this, you're like, what are you talking about, Greg? Go watch him in the press scrum with Tony Khan and Chris Jericho after the show. I don't know if this was a work by Omega in his eyes or not because he is doing such weird and sometimes that does create interesting weird things in his work like the Golden Lovers, right? He, he wants you asking weirder questions about what he's doing or at least less conventional questions about what he's doing out there. And the question I was asking when I was watching that post-match media scrum was how bad is like Kenny Omega's anxiety? How fearful is he of public speaking? Like I, I was watching that and I was wondering why he was even there. Did he even want to be at that wrestling show? Like I was not sold that he had had a good time that night. I was not sold that he was having any fun being in front of the media and not in an annoyed way like he would look down on the media. Like he was overwhelmed by the moment. Like the fucking 15 nerds that were in front of him asking questions was too grandiose and vaunted of a audience and moment and he couldn't handle it. And when you think about that, and what I wrote down as I was organizing my thoughts on this was I was in the seventh grade afraid to give my presentation in English class once too. And I did the exact same thing. Watch this media scrum, you guys. I hyper-focused on what I was going to say 30 minutes early. And then I locked it in so I could feel confident about it. And then when it was my turn to speak, I kind of fumbled my way into a really long speech that rambled and went a million different directions and was completely unrelated to what the person before me said and was completely unrelated to the question that got asked. And I just rambled for a while and then I kind of, and I feel like this is what he did. It's almost like he doesn't see that he's doing that and really thinks that everyone there really loves him. And this is what I say when I say I can't tell if it's a work or not, but it's rubbing me the wrong way. Like, I, I don't care. I'm just not interested. It's cringy. It was painful to watch. It wasn't a good work. You see a good work in a, in a press scrum, go watch Christian Cage. Different character, different energy. I understand that. But that was a successful work. Whereas Kenny Omega just, oh, it was terrible. Look at the look on Chris Jericho's face. As like I was watching it last night as I was falling asleep. And I started fast forwarding ahead. Three minutes into a rambling answer. And he's still talking. He's still talking. He's still talking. And, like, when it was his turn to talk, he made a big deal out of, like, not, like, loud, like, in a soft way. Is, is I can speak to that. Would, would you like, well, but it was just, so, I can't do a great impression of it. It was so fucking cringy. And I, I'm not sold that Kenny Omega wants to even be a professional wrestler at wrestling events. I'm not, right now, I believe the opposite. And maybe it's because of inner, injury, exhaustion, 
something that happened 10 minutes prior to the scrum. I have no idea. But I, I, am, I am sold that he is miserable. That's what I've been sold on. That he is unhappy doing what he's doing. That he's uncomfortable doing what he's doing. And he's miserable. And he doesn't want to be there. That's, that's, that's what I saw in Kenny Omega. I'm so off of the elite. I'm so off of Kenny Omega right now. There's some of the worst things going on in AEW. I'm going to keep talking about that when I get into the tag team matches from this show. It's so bad. And actually, it's a perfect segue because they're next on my notes here. And then we're going to take a break after this, talk about some more matches, talk about some fast lane. Appreciate you guys listening to the rants this morning. Those of you watching live on Twitch, listening wherever you are watching on YouTube, I appreciate you boys. And I'm curious what you guys saw of this show. Leave a comment. Let me know what was your favorite match and what do you think about the Elite? What do you think about Kenny Omega? Is anyone else picking up on these vibes? Is it just me? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But all that is why I said earlier that Kenny Omega works against Swerve Strickland and Swerve doesn't even really have to change much because there's just a weak... There's just a weak energy emanating out of all those guys right now. There's just a weak fucking vibe coming out of all those guys right now. I don't know how else to say it. So to come to the next group of them, I, I don't want to break down the the four different tag teams in the in the in the spot fest. That was that was the elite and their friends doing their flippies, and that's not my favorite thing in the whole world. Uh, it was entertaining, and it can work in a long show as an individual match, having a 10-15 minute performance of over-the-top choreographed flippies um, that isn't always necessarily what I view as professional wrestling. And, but it's fine. It's fine in the context of the show. It's fine in the context of getting us on our feet, getting people excited for things. Um, so I don't want to necessarily hate on that. Um, but the Bucks win... And FTR wins, and I'm kind of skipping past those matches because I thought both matches were uh, underwhelming. Did I ever give, I forgot to say, I gave that six-man tag match a four out of ten if you were curious. It's just my rating for everything that was interesting enough and I enjoyed but was nothing truly special. I go to four for that, so I gave that one a four out of ten. I gave FTR versus Aussie Open a four out of ten. That's why I don't see any need to talk a whole lot about it. I, I was hoping for more. I didn't know a lot about Aussie Open. They seem to have a a fan base. They seem to have some people. And I don't know if these are Australian people. I don't know if these are New Japan fans. Um, I didn't know coming into it. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if they know why they're Aussie Open fans. I'm so harsh. But um I didn't see anything from Aussie Open. Like, I didn't know what to expect, and I thought, wow, they got this kind of fan base. Maybe FTR, there's an upset here. Who knows? Um, but this was just a tag team match and somebody to lose to FTR at the end of the day. That's what I saw. Uh, Mark Davis, one half of Aussie Open, he does, like, this butt bump that I think it's called, just dropping his ass down on a on a prone opponent who's you know the opponent's laying down and it's same kind of drop that Samoa Joe will do at times it's not a great or interesting move you need to be a sizey dude and Mark Davis is a sizey dude to make it make sense but he went to it on like three separate occasions throughout the course of the match and by the end of it I was like these guys don't know what they're doing like they don't have 
they're, they're not mixing interesting moves into interesting spots. They're just kind of doing their spots, it felt like. Like, this is the move I do in this moment, always. It was like a comfort zone. And, and the match felt like a comfort zone. Like, Aussie Open, I felt like doing all the same things they did against Adam Cole and MJF in that match. So, I don't know. I, I don't want to uh, – I, I don't understand. It's not that I'm disappointed in Aussie Open. I didn't understand what to expect because they do have an energy in their fan base. Maybe it's just the music and the fact that they're Australian. I don't know, but – uh, I was underwhelmed by it. I gave the match a four out of ten. But to come back to the point I was making about the Bucks and the Elite and how that related, the Bucks won their number one contender match. So that means we're set up in the tag team division in, in AEW for FTR versus the Young Bucks. Uh, 4.0, I guess. I was going to call it 2.0 because we just did it at all in, but it's really 3 or 4.0 at this point. Um, I am interested, like all the critiques of the elite aside, you know, they're great heels. Like they need to be wrestling heel. Like when the Bucks came out, I had the middle finger up and it felt good. And then it was fun to watch him do some spots. Like they're not terrible. So like there's a, there can be a spot, there can be a role here and that role can be in main events. Like there have been great tag matches with the Bucks in it. I, I, I do like some of what they do, but I'm worried that maybe maybe the brass feels like FTR is underperforming or maybe this current tag team championship reign has been a little uninteresting because I'm wondering if going back to the Bucks this quickly, maybe this is a tit-for-tat situation. Okay, FTR, you get to win in London, and then the Bucks are going to get the belts a couple months later. Um, I hope not. Because this kind of has been an uninteresting tag team run for FTR. And you can eject on that. You can get out of it. You can put those belts on somebody else. Or you can have something interesting happen. You can engineer that interesting thing. And it would be interesting to finally quit splitting the hairs between uh, FTR and the Young Bucks. And saying that they're just opposite sides of the same coin and they're both the best at what they do and they do very different things and and we're going to have those two feud and and every six months we'll just alternate who wins this having FTR win again against the Bucks and stamp home a sense of no we're dominating and then figuring out I don't know figuring out if you need to go heal at that point or maybe the fans just want it I don't know uh, the fans love the Bucks, and the fans love FTR, too. So I, I don't know. I don't know what direction they're going to go. When I was watching the number one contender match, I was hoping for the Guns to win. I was more interested in seeing the Guns work with FTR. Uh, not that I think the Guns are, quote, better than the Bucks or anything like that, but I think the Guns have mad upside. And I think the Guns have mad upside feuding with FTR. Like, I thought that whole program was fantastic, I never understood why the acclaimed were ripped out of the tag team picture to do the trios thing. Like they have tag teams here, a tag team division of the Lucha brothers, FTR, the bucks, the guns and the acclaimed is so good. And so interesting. 
they're just not using any of those kind of mid card teams right in my opinion right now and and I don't know I don't know where the where the titles are going I don't know where all this is going but it's keeping my interest but I'm a little pessimistic just because it's the box and it's the elite and I haven't enjoyed I haven't enjoyed much of what they're doing but with that with that said Wrestle Dream was the greatest show ever and I loved every bit of it see I told you I told you I was going to tear it apart. I was going to eviscerate it. I was going to castrate it to use all the words of the day. And then at the end of it, I was going to tell you how fucking amazing it was because that's just the way I'm wired, apparently. Um, It really was. It was a great show. And I I am just pointing out the things that stick out to me as I sat and I watched it. Um, So, yeah, we'll see where it goes. We got to we're going to take a break right here. We got a few more matches to talk about from WrestleDream. And then we have WWE Fastlane with a world title fight with an angle and a pair that I've been enjoying, Shinsuke Nakamura and Seth Rollins. But after the break, we're going to talk about, oh my God, the match of the century, Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. This is Rope Break. I am the Greg Flynn, and we will catch you after the break. I ain't never missed my cue. Hey, we're back, you greasy motherfuckers. Welcome to Rope Break. And we are breaking down the second half. We're breaking down the meaty, the meaty matches, is what I was trying to say. The real meat of AEW Wrestle Dream from this past weekend. We got the good matches up next in this segment. We got the ones that sold the show. The ones that we came to see, that everyone came to see. The first match. I want to talk about in this next segment the greatest technical wrestling match ever. Brian Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. This match was absolutely phenomenal. It lived up to the hype. It's, it, it went be above and beyond the hype. It transcended the hype. It was absolutely fantastic. It had no build at all. It was a booked match. And that's Tony Khan's strength. That's AEW's strength is kind of working with New Japan, breaking forbidden doors, bringing in a variety of names and faces from all over, and then booking these sort of dream matches, right? That's kind of one of the things that AEW has done really well. But then they've always put the onus, to use the word I used earlier, on the pod, on the guys uh, who are doing the work or doing the match, to get over any relevant story or to get over the match to 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 book the match itself to figure out what the fuck they're going to do etc 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 these two guys thrive in that sort of environment and when i was watching on social media Zack Saber Jr bitching about the result uh and coming up with his reason why uh he deserved a rematch i just thought man these two in the same promotion adding just the wrinkle of some sort of championship belt or whatever feud that you can do in a weekly episodic, like a TV or couple of pay-per-views in a row, whatever, I thought would be so fucking good because this was a match made in heaven in terms of the two men involved. Like, they knew how to work this style of wrestling. This was, I always make fun of Matt Wrestling and the WMWE Fed. 
By the way, we have another show coming up October 11th. That's next Wednesday, Wrestling Wednesday. Be there. But regardless, it was fundamental mat wrestling is what we like to call it there. And that's what this was, but just legitimate and evolved. It was so fantastic. When the match started and they both got low into athletic positions and started circling around each other and trying to grapple and lock up, establish risk control, I was giggling and I just screamed, I love it already, before they'd even touched each other because you could feel that they were going to build something it was so good it was so good it's interesting because there's not a lot to break down in terms of move to move right Uh, it was all on the mat it was a back and forth everything is a reversal of everything else and it's all about establishing leverage and control over your opponent that whole journey through. So whenever somebody starts getting a little bit of leverage, it's so enthralling. It captures you. You you feel like you're really watching something. If you think about a standard wrestling match, right? Your heel, your bad guy dominates for a little bit and the fans all boo. He kicks the shit out of the guy you like. And then the guy you like makes the baby face comeback, right? This didn't have that. This had the nuanced version of that. There's a back and forth. There was a heel and a baby face. Zack Sabre Jr. was playing the role of the douchebag uh, from a different promotion. And Brian Danielson, the hometown hero from Aberdeen, Washington, uh, from AEW. Like, the layers of his baby faceness in that vibe were just overwhelming and and so we had our clear baby face we had a clear match we had a clear vision of what to expect and there and with those expectations we had two talented performers who could play with those expectations you want a technical wrestling match okay jump on board and as we jump on board and we're getting uh, engrossed by every shift in momentum, every shift in leverage between the two athletes. There's a moment when Zack Sabre Jr. gets a hold of Brian Danielson's hand and begins to snap the fingers. And instantaneously, the whole crowd starts chanting, you sick fuck, you sick fuck, as though it was the king of deathmatch. Mick Foley taking a barbed wire bat or something and coated in blood when in actuality, all we were watching was a wrestling move that my daughters have performed on my hand a million fucking times and it was exploding the audience because it was wrestling, because they were playing the psychology of what we expected and wanted as an audience and what they were capable of performing as athletes and performers. It was so fucking good. This is not the type of match necessarily that is going to uh, capture the attention of an 8- or 12-year-old wrestling fan. Um, It may uh, it wasn't like it was boring in that sense, but you never thought you were going to see a steel chair. You never thought you were going to see anybody jump off the top turnbuckle, and then you didn't, and then it was it managed to find a way to be so engrossing without that bullshit, almost as though you don't need it, almost as though it is just something that can be saved 
for unique occasions and then thus have more of an impact when you do see it instead of eight matches in a row with blood and flipping off the top turnbuckle and just big high impact move after move in a wrestling show. This was a wrestling match in a wrestling show. It was so fucking good. Uh, when Brian Danielson, oh, when Brian Danielson goes for the stomps on the face of Zack Saber Jr., I don't know. I want to go. I haven't watched the actual pay-per-view footage, uh, the TV what got broadcast. I haven't seen that. But from where I was sitting, that was the most violent selling of those stomps I've ever seen. Like it fucking looked like Danielson was stomping in Saber Jr.'s head. Right, like he, th- these two guys just sold everything. They flowed in everything so well. They were on the same page in being against each other. It was fucking art. And when the running knee from Brian Danielson finally comes out, you get a, uh, I believe the sequence was uh, Saber kicks out on one after a move, kicks out on two after the knee, another knee, three count. He's functionally knocked out. And it looked like he had been knocked the fuck out. Like, we just watched you wrestle all this time, and all of a sudden this running knee, which you could see 15 of in a Kenny Omega match. It only took one, two, one moment of it, two of them, though, to get it over as being this fucking monstrous thing in this Danielson Sabre Jr. match where you felt like you watched something really violent and not necessarily in the flow of a technical wrestling match all of a sudden happened, and it was so violent that it secured victory for Danielson. That whole fucking thing just makes sense and is interesting and compelling. And then Sabre Jr. afterwards in social media saying, that's not technical wrestling. This match was booked to determine who the greatest technical wrestler in the world is. And you're just shoving, running your knee into my head, knocking me unconscious. You haven't proven a fucking thing, have you? Rematch. And just thinking about it, I'm like, yes, rematch. And that is a good reason for it. This is wrestling. This is wrestling. It was wrestling in the ring, and then it was wrestling outside of the ring. Why is this happening? Why do they care? And they're selling me on those whys. And so now I care that it's happening. I'm encaptured, enthralled. This is like that good kind of intrigue. When I talk about being kind of, okay, I'm kind of interested in the Bucks. It's like, it's almost like I hate watch (laughs) in a certain vibe. Like, and they're baby faces and the whole crowd cheers when they come out. And, but I'm annoyed by all this shit. Bad annoyed. It's starting to turn away, feeling my energy, feeling my vibe turn away. This is the type of work where I feel my energy. I mean, as I talk about it, I sit up straight, I get excited. This is the type of work that is professional wrestling. And I know that this is what Brian Danielson, I suspect, I feel that this is what Brian Danielson came to AEW to be doing. This is what he thought he would be doing. And I'm sure he enjoys the death matches too and all that. But this was an incredible wrestling match against an appropriate opponent for Brian Danielson. 
And I want Zack Sabre Jr. in AEW. I want the two of them feuding over the world championship. I want Danielson winning that feud for three years. I know he's a little bit older. And then finally a moment when Sabre Jr. takes the crown. I'm getting goosebumps imagining that. It takes the crown from Brian Danielson as the best technical wrestler in the world. And all that whole fucking arc could and would be beautiful, beautiful art, beautiful wrestling art. Um, and so that this was the match of the show. My final rating of this match was a 9 out of 10. The only thing stopping it really from being higher was just a little more outside of the ring. Uh, like I said, a belt to feud over, a, a purpose to feud over, a little more meat than just pride on the technical wrestling thing. There's almost literally nothing they could have done in the ring to enhance it. Next time, they can. And when one of them finally, maybe in this feud, this proposed feud, finally does jump off the turnbuckle or something like that, it's going to just mean so much in this context. Like, not everything has to be about trashing Kenny Omega, but Kenny Omega can't get you this excited for his flip off the top turnbuckle despite the fact that his flip will be more athletic and graceful than either Danielson's or Sabre Jr.'s, the one I care about is the one that means something. The one that got built to. Oh my God, those two guys are killing it. I hope they feud forever. I hope Zack Sabre Jr. comes to... Uh, I hope he comes to AEW. Um, I think WWE is... Just not the place for him necessarily. Like he he would thrive in this sort of environment, especially if you get the right people around him. Um, and you know, as I say all that, it's like how many people on the planet can do this style of match? Worth noting before we move on to the main event, Christian Cage and Darby Allen. There was a similar match in the buy-in, uh, a proper worked wrestling match between a guy from Seattle who I guess trained with Antonio Inoki. Uh, again, Wrestle Dream being a tribute show to Antonio Inoki. But this was an American guy from Seattle named Josh Barnett, I believe his name was. And he had a proper worked wrestling match, not unlike the Sabre Jr. Danielson match, uh, during the buy-in against Claudio Castagnoli. And it was really good. And when the high-impact thing started to came out, when Castagnoli went to the giant swing, it didn't feel like a gimmick. Oh my gosh, I'm just explaining why this is what wrestling is and why it's so fucking good because when this giant swing move if we're just gonna bust it out whenever it'll get a pop in these goofy six-man tag matches or in these incredibly over-the-top violent matches where like okay he could jam an ice pick into his face or he could do the giant swing and now this big Swedish guy's doing the giant swing while Moxley jams a fucking fork into Orange Cassidy it's just it's just been done in the wrong context and then you saw in that match during a worked wrestling match where they're fucking on the mat and getting leverage and all of a sudden, when I got your legs in my arms because of the natural flow of that, and I'm swinging you around and tossing you, it made sense. It looked like it hurt. It, it had context. This is what wrestling is. This is what wrestling needs to be. There's a place for other things, but those other things need to stick out. Those other things aren't a style of wrestling. 
those other things are the unique climaxes that can occasionally and should only be occasionally hit in the flow of what wrestling is. Oh, and that's what I was really, I was really irked by that fucking Kenny Omega press scrum because he was talking about showing off their in-house style of wrestling with AEW. That's not an in-house style of wrestling. That's you, Kenny, not knowing what wrestling is and not understanding what makes wrestling good. You don't get it. You don't get what you're doing. You're very athletic. You're gifted athletically. Like, in a way that so few human beings get to be. So... That is what it is, but you're not showing me that you get professional wrestling. You're not showing me that you get how to merge theater with fight. You're forgetting the fight. You're, you, you, oh, it bothers me. It bothers me. And Danielson Sabre Jr. and Barnett and Claudio Casagnoli. They, those guys all just stole the show. They just stole the show. It was so good. Nine out of ten. And just with opportunity galore to get even higher in my rating system. Okay, moving on to the main event. I got to move on at some point. That match was so fucking good. It was worth the price of admission alone from a wrestling standpoint. The whole show was just fun as a show and an event. Worth the price of admission. Don't get me wrong. I have a good review for Wrestle Dream as a whole product. But this match was the moneymaker. But it wasn't the main event. The main event's the last match I need to talk about. And it was Christian Cage versus Darby Allen for the TNT Championship, a two-out-of-three-fall match. Uh, I, I didn't like the two-out-of-three-fall stipulation in the sense that it telegraphed exactly what happened. When I saw it was two-out-of-three, I, I thought to myself, they're going to sprint through those finishes to set up drama, to set up extreme violence, to set up an edge appearance, which we will get to that. But to set something up, they're not actually going to do a Brian Danielson style two out of three fall match. They're going to do a Darby Allen style two out of three fall match. And it's exactly what it was. Darby got a quick pin on a roll up for the first fall super early. Uh, and it caught the crowd kind of stunned. And some of the uh, younger or more inebriated marks in the crowd were like, oh, my God, that's it. That's our main event. And. And they tried to almost perpetuate that uh, by making you think for a moment that Darby had won. Um, but then they come back in, Christian Cage. Oh, and then they, those brutal bumps that Darby took. Starts taking Darby bumps, Christian Cage power slamming him onto the stairs. But, like, that was even well done because in the past, Darby Allen will get power slammed onto the staircase and it feels like two minutes later, he's on top of a, a, a staircase of his own or a, or a ladder doing a flip, attacking his opponent. Whereas in this context, when he got power slammed, he took that disgusting bump. At least it mattered. I feel like they're starting to figure out some of these things that they tightening up some of these things is a better way of putting it that they used to just let run wild like how many of these insane things can we do in a row because the crowd seems to love it well no do one and make it fucking matter so that way you can actually do actually have a career and that we can actually have a wrestling show so 
Christian Cage power slams him on the stairs. And then while he's milking, they get the 10 count, which gives a, 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 a win uh, for Christian Cage. or It's tied one-to-one at that point. And then they, they had a good spot, which was Darby milks that bump. Darby milks his injury. We put him on a stretcher. And while he's doing that, Christian Cage starts ripping up the mat, right? Exposing the wood underneath the ring, which I had never seen. I'd never seen that in a match. Yeah, I can't. I can't. I've seen the ring fall apart. I've I've seen a variety of things, but I've never seen just an intentional ten minutes of a guy pulling up the mat. And it was a good spot because you're kind of milking the impact of Darby's injury, and you're also kind of getting across how much of a sick fuck Christian Cage is as a character. Like he he's got all this time in the world to think about what he's doing and all he can think about is more fucking violence instilled on Darby. Um so it was fun. He came across fucking psychotic. And uh then he gets on the top turnbuckle after he's pulled off the mat and Darby Allen is on a stretcher and he jumps onto Darby Allen from the top turnbuckle onto a stretcher outside of the ring. It was so fucking good. Um by that point like I'm I'm wondering like if this was wrestling and this isn't a no DQ, like, like what, if you destroy the event center or the, like, if you destroy a basketball court during halftime, they don't just play the second half. (laughs) Like there's an issue with that. And so I was a little confused why one of the competitors was just allowed to destroy the wrestling ring. But at that point I didn't care. And then they started just trading haymakers. They started the third fall, and the two of them just trade haymakers on the wood of the wrestling ring. And Christian Cage is dragging around Darby Allen on the fucking wood of the wrestling ring. And you, at that point, I didn't care. I was seeing something I hadn't really seen before. It was interesting and fun. I was captured by it. And so I kind of take away points when I evaluate it, when things rip me too hard out of that suspension of disbelief, which it did, but at least there was a vibe. At least there was uh, an entertainment there. So then the two start trading blows. Christian Cage finally gets the win. You could hear a pin drop in the arena. I grab my wife's leg and I start squeezing because on my mind, I'm like, this is it. This is it. Edge is coming. Edge is coming. And I liked the way they tease the Edge entrance. They have Sting come out, and you're like, Sting? Nobody likes Grandpa Sting. And then they have Luchasaurus come out. It's like, nobody likes you either, Luchasaurus. And then the lights go dark, and it was like the entire city of Seattle just fucking exploded because we knew it was Edge, and sure enough, the music hits. The same song he's had forever, which I thought was fucking awesome. He said after the show that he knows those guys, and that's why he's able to use that song anywhere he goes. But the music hits, and Edge comes out. They tease that he's going to betray Darby Allen, or, or I guess not betray Darby Allen, but side with his old friend Christian Cage. And instead, he hits Nick Wayne with a chair, and we have Edge in AEW, and the stage is set for him to pursue Christian Cage and the TNT title, which I think is a fun first feud for him. Uh, it's going to start with a match against Luchasaurus, which will be great. Um, but here's the question. that It was a great moment, and it was a great night, and it, it was a great moment to have Edge come out. 
But I'm seeing all this stuff about, like, is this the biggest signing in AEW history? Absolutely not. That is a question being asked by AEW apologists and AEW marks, in my opinion, who want to overhype something. I don't want to take anything away from Edge and what he's accomplished in his career, but when Brian Danielson came in, you were getting somebody who you knew in the ring was one of the best in the world still. You, d- you didn't feel like you were getting a uh, washed-up product. Oh, you didn't feel like AEW was like a retirement home for good wrestlers. Oh, I'm not saying all this is necessarily true. I'm not saying Edge doesn't have it anymore. I'm just saying you feel that vibe when you keep seeing it be older guys uh, coming over. And then uh, the, the other comparison I had was CM Punk. So he's, he wasn't, Edge isn't the in-ring worker that Brian Danielson is. And Edge isn't going to draw the attention or the eyeballs or the intrigue and, and burrow, furrow, burrow, furrow, burrow out the most interesting, compelling things of a moment, the most dramatic he, uh, as a CM Punk. CM Punk is going to jump head first into conflict to create something interesting and and there's nothing stopping edge from doing that but with cm punk like there's a reputation for it there so when you're talking about the biggest signings in aw history jericho day one is bigger Uh, i'm not a jericho fan today but four years ago bringing in jericho to start the company was bigger arguably bringing in kenny omega to start the company was bigger bringing in CM Punk was bigger. Bringing in Brian Danielson was bigger. This is this is a piece. If I'm a booker with AEW, I'm excited as fuck that I have like a main event piece now. I can insert him into feuds and main events for pay-per-views. It's somebody who can work with young guys. I mean, this guy could win the TNT title from Christian and then just defend it against every young name on the roster. What an amazing opportunity for the young guys, for Edge, for the audience, for everyone involved. He eventually can drop it to somebody and get a young talent over, push the TNT title and the meaning of it even more. And then when he drops it, there'd be nothing stopping him from just shifting. He wouldn't lose anything. He's fucking Edge. So he can just shift over into the main event scene, challenge MJF or whoever has the title at that time. Um, So he's an amazing piece to have if you're putting together these puzzles. Like, I'm a fan of Edge. I like this. I like the signing. Like, it's not like it's a stupid signing of a washed-up athlete. That's not what I'm trying to imply here at all. I'm just saying that you haven't fundamentally shifted the paradigm of AEW or professional wrestling with this signing. It's a good piece. It's going to do good things. I'm excited. I was on my feet cheering for Edge. But there's, there's work to be done at this point. It was a great show. I think that's all I have to say about WrestleDream as I quickly skim my notes here. My final score for the entire show was a 6.6 out of 10. That's just my way of saying that it was worth the price of admission. It would probably be worth the pay-per-view buy. And there's rumor, not, not rumors, Tony Khan's on record talking about amping up how many pay-per-views they do. They do four a year. They've added two already this year uh, with All In and Wrestle Dream. That's six, and there's talk of going 8, 10, or even 12 a year. 
they all need to be at least this good, especially if they're going to be charging $50 a month and they're not going to be on some sort of streaming service. If it was any worse, if it was any more underwhelming from a wrestling standpoint, if if you shove more of the elite down my throat in the matches, for example, or, or whatever else, if, if there aren't a lot of title fights on these pay-per-views, too many of them go without, um, then I'm going to start questioning. But questioning whether I'm going to spend $50 a month on something like this. It's a ton of money. But uh, this was sort of... This crossed the threshold. This was good enough. And it, was, it wasn't as good as All Out. It was about comparable to All In. From I think I, think I gave All In a 6.5 or something like that. Uh, whereas All Out felt like a, a better package, a better show, a better movie. When you viewed it all as one. Not individual matches, but when you just took it in, the sum of its parts. Yeah, Wrestle Dream 6.6. It was fun. It was engaging. And for a first wrestling show... In Seattle, Washington, it knocked it out of the park in terms of just being a wrestling show and being engaging in that way. It was super fucking fun. Music hitting, standing up, dancing to the entrances, flicking off the box. I'll do it forever. You guys are fucking terrible. But we got to move on. We got to move on. We're going to take a break, and then in our last segment, we're going to talk about some of the matches booked for WWE Fastlane this Saturday. This is Rope Break, October 3rd. I am the Greg Flynn, and thank you for going on this journey with me today. I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're having a good time. I know I am. We'll be back after the break. I ain't never missed my cue. Hey, welcome back, wrestling fans. We are on the home stretch of this episode. We are going to talk about the upcoming WWE Fastlane during this segment, break down a few of the matches. I'm excited for this one. I feel like they've kind of pulled out a fairly interesting show, and this is what always gets me about WWE and what I always appreciate about WWE. Uh, I was talking at the beginning of the show about like the soap opera vibes. I was kind of making fun of it, all the talking, all the stories. But then it's what makes some of these otherwise underwhelming matches way more compelling uh, when they're able to do it right. So let's look at the card. The first match I got listed here is the Bloodline, represented by Jimmy Uso and Solo Sokoa uh, in tag team against John Cena and L.A. Knight. Oh, boy, there's some there's some baby face energy right there. I'm super excited for this match. It'll be fun. I'm I'm really interested in LA Knight right now. Uh, like this is kind of a mixed bag tag team match. You know, I, if I say it about AEW, I'll say it about these guys. They're just getting the names in uh, to the card and creating the match and creating a match that an aging John Cena could be a part of. There, I said it. But regardless, it's also a rub for LA Knight. And what's going to happen, I don't know, is... Is it going to be a big win for LA Knight where he gets the pinfall on somebody or will there be an unexpected turn or something? I don't know, but I'm interested. I'm interested to see. I'm excited and I'm excited for LA Knight. I've spoken ad nauseum about what a mark I am for him, so I don't need to do that again on this episode, but this will just probably, presumably be another kind of notch in his his rise, his journey here uh, before getting presumably pitted against one of the championship belts eventually uh, and hopefully winning that belt 
I'm totally on the LA Knight train right now. So Cena Knight versus the Bloodline. I'm excited for that. Uh, the Women's Championship is on the line. EO Sky defends in a triple threat against Asuka and Flair. I'm not always a huge fan of triple threat matches. But uh, it's worth noting that the EO Sky Asuka match that happened on SmackDown or Raw, I forget now. Uh, but what was that, a week or two ago now? I thought that was the best women's match I've seen. I don't watch a ton of women's wrestling. Uh, but it was the best women's match I had seen, and I wrote down since Flair and Ripley at WrestleMania. Uh, I, I, I don't even know what would compete in between there. But Io Sky and Oscar, very different vibe from Flair and Ripley. And it's a testament to how good the women's division in WWE truly is. Like, they have athletes, they have names who can do this, who can put on different style of matches. Flair Ripley at WrestleMania, I mean, they're, they could flare off the top turbuckle doing a moonsault. It's a beautiful image. But it's more of an impactful, powerful style of wrestling, whereas Io Sky and Asuka are a couple of high-flying ninjas out there. And both styles are working in tandem, different types of athletes working in tandem in WWE and melding and meshing together to create a really interesting division. So when I saw this match on the card, I was like, okay, some of the flair impact and the EO Sky Asuka energy. And I mean, those are high flyers, right? Uh, so, you know, as far as the outcome, I don't, I assume EO Sky wins. My assumption is that. They're going to run with EO Sky for a little bit here and try to build her up, get her over, and establish with the WWE audience what EO Sky's audience, I think, has known about her for a little while. And I'm not necessarily a part of that. I didn't follow her in Japan, but I've, I've YouTubed. I've, I've done my YouTube research, so I'm pretty much an expert on, on EO Sky at this point. But no, I'm a fan of what she does in the ring from a high-flying perspective. Uh, so this championship reign and her having the belt, I've enjoyed. And I mean, I'm enjoying the women's division at WWE. Oh, my gosh. So much more than AEW. I mean, it just is what it is. It's, it's, it's so much better. It's, it's so much more well-booked. And the athletes, I think, are having much, much, much better matches in WWE. So I'm excited for that match. The tag team belts are going to be defended. Judgment Day. The current tag team champions defending against Cody Rhodes and main event Jay Uso. I think that's super interesting. I, I would be surprised to see Rhodes and Uso carry around the tag belt. I don't think they want to put a tag team belt on Jay Uso while they're in the middle of pushing him as a single main event Jay Uso. And I will say, when I was looking at the card, I was like, it stuck out that both Usos, now that they're split up and supposed to be doing individual things, are both in tag teams for this show. It doesn't mean anything unless it means something, if that makes sense. I guess what I'm saying is they're not necessarily worried about it or hiding them or anything like that, unless they are. <laughs> and, and only time will tell which is the case. Um, but I haven't... Uh, candidly, always loved everything from Jay Uso uh, from a performance standpoint. He doesn't 
sell me the way L.A. Knight sells me on that he believes he is the motherfucker. Jey Uso feels like he needs me to believe it first sometimes before he's going to be willing to believe it. He's, and that can be a character and that can be a thing, but it can also be a vibe and a, and a drawback if you're trying to push main event Jey Uso, and I don't believe that he believes it. But the match itself could be very good. I love Cody Rhodes. I'm the biggest Cody Rhodes mark ever. And Judgment Day just fucking carry the WWE as far as weekly. Like, you know you're not going to get necessarily a big Cody Rhodes match every show. So say you don't get a big Gunther match, but you do get a lot of Gunther title defenses. But you know that every episode, it's going to be Judgment Day. And those guys have carried the WWE weekly programming during sort of like this sort of mid-season lull that they're in. Like, we're it's October 3rd today, so we're like mathematically about as far away from WrestleMania as we can get in the calendar. It was six months ago. It's six months ahead of us. We are in the doldrums. We are in the middle of the regular season, if this was baseball, if you will. And so, but like the question is, who who's going to carry the torch during that time? Because that's who's in the trenches and that's who's truly next often. And that's kind of what the joy I take out of the way WWE does structure their programming and, and that they have a Super Bowl. Yeah, sure, it's going to take away a little momentum when you're this far away from the Super Bowl, when you're this far away from WrestleMania, but it's also an opportunity to dig into, well, who's next? Who's, who's going to be competing in the Super Bowl? And it gives it its own weird meaning in these moments. And it's Judgment Day. Week after week, show after show, finding a way to be interesting, finding a way to be fresh. And we're seeing J.D. McDonough come in and the potential dissolution of the Finn Balor, Damian Priest alliance. It seems like it's going to be those two feuding. But then again, Mommy is super pissed at Dominique Mysterio for losing the North American title, telling him he doesn't even need to come home if he can't win it back. You don't come back to mommy's bed without that NXT North American championship, Dom Dom. So it's interesting. It's fun. It's making goofy titles mean something. And it's giving the show some teeth and uh, some meat, rather, for to bite into week after week. So I, I just love the Judgment Day. I love what they've been doing. Like, it's not my favorite style. It's not my favorite type of faction. I don't necessarily dress that way or listen to that style of music or anything, but as far as performers and wrestlers and athletes, like they're killing it. They're carrying everything right now while we wait for Roman Reigns and Cody Rhodes and The Rock and whatever's going to come next, come Super Bowl time. So the main event, come back on topic, the main event of WWE Fastlane is the World Heavyweight Championship, Shinsuke Nakamura versus Seth Rollins. We finally get the payoff. I've Enjoyed marking out for this feud a little bit and marking out for Shinsuke speaking in Japanese and being, as my wife calls him, a kooky bastard. <laughs> we were watching Raw last night and when Shinsuke comes on, she's like, oh my God, I love this kooky bastard. <laughs> like, I know. Shinsuke's been killing it. I almost hope he wins. I know he won't, but I, I almost hope he does. Uh, he's been doing great and hopefully this will be a great match. Last man standing match. I don't 
know what that means. It means it's a no disqualification match wherein they can use weapons and you don't win by pinfall. You you win by count out functionally, 10 second KO count out. That's fine. I don't know what to expect in terms of a finish now or whatever else, but uh uh I've enjoyed this feud. It's been it's been a nice mid-season regular season feud. Um and it's just kind of a testament to the formula of WWE. It can Sometimes feel formulaic, but the other side of that is having a plan can get you somewhere. You end up having a little direction, right, when you actually move the sails yourself instead of just going wherever the wind happens to be taking you in that moment. And that's what I always appreciate about WWE. So that's, oh my gosh, what I appreciate about Judgment Day, what I appreciate about getting to enjoy a Rollins-Nakamura feud right now that otherwise I wouldn't care about, but they've gotten it over. They've gotten me relatively interested in it. Uh, and it does help that I don't, we were talking about this with WrestleDream. It does help that I don't have to pay $50 every month to get excited and then evaluate whether I'm fucking hurting my family or my own finances just to watch shitty wrestling. Like I'd, I'd rather you know, my kids not go to college, at least I could watch good wrestling for that sacrifice. I mean, you know, maybe they'll get scholarships, I don't know. Or maybe maybe AEW will find a streaming service. We can hope. Hey, this has been Rope Break, a pro wrestling podcast. I have had a blast at WrestleDream, and I had a blast this morning ranting and raving about WrestleDream and Fastlane. I appreciate you guys going on the journey with me. We will be back next week, next Tuesday at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, 9.30 a.m. Pacific with another episode of Rope Break. We're going to be talking about the results from Fastlane. We're going to be talking about the fallout from AEW WrestleDream. We're going to be talking about the push that Swerve hopefully gets on TV this week and uh, whatever else is popping in the world of professional wrestling. Hey, I appreciate you boys. Have a great rest of your day wherever you are. Bye! I ain't never missed my cue. Never ever ever missed my cue.